Hello everybody and uh, welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. We have a very special one today and I'll reveal all in just a moment. But first of all, let me tell you about our subscription offer because you can save up to 70% when you subscribe at the moment, which is a very good deal. So if you go to our website, motorsportmagazine.com forward slash CP14, that's C for Charlie, P for Papa, 1-4, and choose between a print subscription, a digital subscription, and the soon-to-arrive archive. Or, of course, you can have all three in one and still save 70%. Now, the archive, you, many of you may have heard about this, but we now have every single article from every edition of Motorsport since 1924 available on, what do we call it, Ed? Uh, well, on the internet, yes, but it's uh, so it's uh, so it's a uh, bit digitized, yeah. digitized, in incredible piece of work, fantastic. Anyway, that is coming up in the next few months. Look out for it. Okay, well, here we are at the headquarters of Gordon Murray Design in Surrey, in England, of course, and um, we have a great number of questions. Not surprisingly, for the man who arguably built the most beautiful post-war Formula One cars. Well, that's my opinion, anyway. And in fact, we're looking across the room here um, at the McLaren MP44, and right next to it is a bottle of 1970 Barolo. And we're all wondering <laughs> which one would we like best. So tell us, how did, how did this occur? Well, that started way back in uh, at the beginning of McLaren cars when I first set up the business for the McLaren Group. Um, our first project was the McLaren F1. It was uh, technically called Project One, but quite soon people began to know that Project One, you know, it, we thought people would find out that that was the BMW project. So when we did the uh, engine deal over in Munich, um, we decided to have uh, another code name, and we picked, uh, I wanted it to be a wine name, and we picked a wine name beginning with the customer letter. Uh, B, of course, so we picked Barolo, and we exchanged uh, bottles of 1970 Barolo when we signed the contract uh, with BMW to do the engine for the F1. And we, up until recently, we kept up that tradition, but now we're working on, um, we're working on seven cars, um, actually more than nine cars at the moment, and we sort of run out of wine names, really, so, um, <laughs> so we've reverted back to uh, project names. You're a collector of wine as well as great motor cars, aren't you? Yeah, I'm not a collector. I don't collect anything, actually. I've got lots of cars and lots of bottles of wine, but I use them and drink them. Um, I don't like the idea of collecting, actually, for collector's sake. Uh, for collecting's sake. I've got a very good seller in, in England and a, and a reasonable one in France. Um, but we, we, we share it with friends and drink them. Quite right, too, I say. You never yeah, look yeah. on wine as an investment. Uh, it's an indirect investment. Yeah, I know it is. Um, but you never, but I mean you never, no, no, I don't. That's my you point. You never buy. That's my point. I don't buy to, to resell. Uh, to I've never sold money. a bottle of wine in my life. No, but right. actually, when you have a dinner party, and you add up what it would have cost you if you went out and bought it the week before, it's quite astounding. So it's an indirect investment, really. Okay. Um, Let's move on to Formula One with Gordon Murray, and uh, maybe we could start with today's Formula One and um, get it out of the way. Uh, what is your view, Gordon, of the direction it's currently taking the sport? Um, 
there's, there's two views. I mean, the, the view I took, uh, I, I happily worked in, in, in very exciting years when you could make big changes. And I left, uh, my final year was, season was 89, I think. And the sort of direction it took after that, from a technical point of view, there's two issues here. There's a technical point of view, then there's the spectacle and the sport and what it is to the, yeah. to the pu public, if you like. Sure. From a technical point of view, it started getting very narrow, in my opinion. Um, so I was quite pleased to be out of it in the 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah. So that's the technical point of view. From the point of view of it, Formula One as a whole, taking a holistic view of it, um, I don't like the direction it's going, uh, really. I think it's, uh, I think it's quite false in a couple of areas, um, and, and I can understand absolutely the reasoning behind trying to bring overtaking back in. Unfortunately, there were much more, there were much more simple ways of reintroducing overtaking, which had a, had a technical background and not an artificial background. I do see the reasoning for that. Um, I think the current direction, trying to make it green, whatever that means in Formula One, is, is a load of rubbish. It really is. I mean, the one thing Bernie's always got right and still has right is that, you know, Formula One is, is a spectator sport, it's, it's a spectacle, um, it's a driver's championship, you know. And uh, if Formula One is, is green by its nature. If you've got a whole bunch of people spending a fantastic amount of money trying to get the last gram of fuel to do the best amount of work, that's green. That technology is green in itself. And if you look at how engines in particular have gone in the last two decades, maybe even three, you know, changing over to everybody's using twin cam, four valves per cylinder, friction reduction, low friction coatings now coming in and stuff like that, that's, that's going towards a green formula. You don't, have to, you don't have to start putting in engine formulas that are closer to road cars and s numbers of cylinders. That's not Formula One for me. That's, that's not not the green direction they should be going, in my opinion. Gordon, could I just ask, if, if it were up to you, if you had a clean sheet of paper and you were at Gordon Murray's Formula One rules, mm -hmm. without running to 800 pages here and now, I mean, what, what, would, what, would, you, what would you like to see? Well, if you read motorsport, I was asked to do that and I did a very crude drawing showing uh, what I could do. D but to be fair to your question, um, that, wasn't, that wasn't answering that whole question. But it was trying to address the issues we have in Formula One and a lot of those are practical issues, it being a spectator sport. If you, if you look, I'll answer your question in a minute, but if you look back at that, what I said in that magazine, I mean, things like, just take one thing I said, for example, uh, the high noses were c quite obviously ridiculous from a load path and a crash point of view, and from a, having the cars attractive point of view as well. And if you lower the noses, everybody's in the same boat. You know? The other one, that the practical issue, was the, uh, the front wing. I mean, having massive front wings right out to the outside of the car, the number of races that get... I've, I've actually turned a Formula One program off a couple of times because, you know, somebody knocks the front wing, there's carbon all over the track, and the safety car comes out, you know. And it's, it's cobblers, really. I mean, you, all you need is, is a decent-sized front wing, and you were trying to reduce downforce anyway. Mm. Um, so I think I covered a lot of it in that article. But... A lot of that was sort of more practical issues, trying to get it back on. If, you, if you're saying, 
I think you're saying, a clean sheet of paper, you know, what would the regulations be? I would take everything I did in, mot in that motorsport article as a starting point. That is the size of the car, the width of the rim, the reduction in the rims, harder compounds, longer overtaking areas, all that sort of stuff. Reducing the balance issue you have coming out of a high-speed corner behind another car by reducing the downforce at the extremities, giving the designers a lot more freedom back with the centre of the car to make central downforce near the centre of pressure. That's th I explained all that in that, in that article. Um, the tricky one is engines, I think. And what we've got now, I think one of the things they have got right is to, I mean, might have gone over the top now, but one of the things they have got right is the um, making engines and gearboxes more reliable because again that gives us you know a fairer drivers championship and competition through the world but it's a fine line between having a one engine and one gearbox formula mm -hmm. and then the sport's not technical anymore and doesn't offer people the opportunity to make advances um, technically so the one thing I would I would have to think long and hard about would be the engine and transmission part of that formula. But I think the rest of the car, I stick I stick by absolutely what I wrote in that article. If if you go back and have a look at that, you know. Gordon, given your your F1 cars always had a reputation for looking good, mm -hmm. what were your first thoughts when you saw this this year's new breed? Well, first, firstly, you have to whatever the regulations are. Firstly, you have to look at the fundamentals. I'm I'm in a quite a unique. Um, position rarely I think is I've styled all my cars I I started work I started work I started school studying art and changed to thank God to technical drawing because I think I've been a rubbish artist <laughs> and I wouldn't have had all the fun I've had um, and and therefore I've kept sort of a reasonable aesthetics with me so I still style uh, a lot of the cars we do now and work I work with a team of people but I still do a lot of the styling myself so I think I had a sort of a, a head start and before wind tunnels a lot of it was just using experience and gut feel for how the wind was going to go over the car so there was a lot of freedom to make cars look better uh, and then even when we used wind tunnels, there were certain elements of the motor car that really didn't make too much difference and in a lot of cases, you know, what looks good is good you know, the con everybody always puts forward Concorde, don't they? <laughs> so, you know, the shape of a nose and the, and the shape of a windscreen to chuck a bubble of air over the driver's head is, is going to look pretty good, usually. Now the problem is um, we're in a period in Formula One where aerodynamics are probably 70%, 80% of the performance envelope, mm -hmm. particularly now we've got sort of equal engines and you know ECUs and all the rest of it and the work the, the work involved in the aerodynamics from an aesthetic point of view is largely driven by masses amount of detail and and the overall concept of the motor car sometimes gets lost because of the detail I and I think another one of my rules, sorry to keep harping back to the magazine article, but um, <laughs> another one of the rules was to ban anything sticking up off the skin by more than a couple of millimetres. So, so the, the, the designers would have to concentrate on a fundamental aerodynamic shape again, rather than detailed tuning of the air to go into an intake or out of an exit or, or whatever. And I think the cars would naturally look prettier and, and better proportioned. The other thing, of course, that, that is, is really stymied um, design now is um, 
is the fact that the, the regulations place all the major masses in exactly the same place on all the cars, where the driver sits, where the fuel tank is, the size of the engine, the size of the gearbox, which dictates the wheelbase, and, uh, and then you're stuck. So uh, you, the, the added complexity to cars, uh, the reason why cars don't look very good, is exactly that, because they all look quite similar. You know, I've said for years now, if you painted all the Formula 1 cars on the grid white and got an enthusiast in a room and gave him 30 seconds, you know, you wouldn't get to. Um. And also in the V8 era, they all sounded exactly the same as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Gordon, can we, um, because we haven't got very much time, we're going to have to jump around a bit. And what, what was the moment when you decided you'd had enough of Formula 1 racing and it was time to do something completely different. What, what was the process of that? I think there's no simple answer there because it was, it was multiple factors, I'd say. Um, the main reason was, stupidly, uh, and it wasn't all to do with the small budget we had at Brabham, stupidly, I, I wanted to do everything myself in the team. And for a long, long time in Brabham, up until 77 or 78, I ran, I was the only person in, in, you knew you were chief designer in those days because when you looked over your shoulder, there's nobody else in the office. Um, I looked after both racing cars and the T car and did all the wind tunnel testing myself and, and ran the factory effectively. And I, I, well in the 70s I had a collapse basically, I fell over. Um, and then even when I got David North on board, who was, you know, it was fantastic suddenly to have this guy you could talk to <laughs> and bounce ideas off. Uh, there were two of us, you know, so that, that halved that. And then eventually, still way into, I think, the 80s, I was still engineering both cars and, and the T car. Um, so the first reason was I was knackered, really. I really was. 20 years in Formula 1, I was absolutely tired. Of course, that wasn't the same in McLaren. When I arrived at McLaren, they had, they had, first of all, they had other people that could draw bits. You didn't have to draw the whole car yourself, which was a good start. And they had, they had engineers, they had test engineers, they had engineers working on the car, so I could pick people for different positions. Um, that was the first reason. The other reason was... Um, I, all my life I've really wanted a, a new challenge and the Formula 1 regs were starting to get tighter and tighter and tighter and I'd been through this amazing period where I can't, I should count them up one day, how many different engines I'd had to design cars for in a short period of time. McLaren alone was three engines and three years and, and Brabham of course we had the flat 12, the V12 and the COSI and then the four-cylinder BMW. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, um, and I could just see it getting less of a challenge, if you like, um, and I, I've always looked for a new challenge, and I, I get to a point, I'm not one of these people that just want to collect, collecting again, you know, collect world championships, because I don't, I don't, why? I'd already done, f got five world championships, and 150 Grand Prix or whatever, and I just wanted a new challenge. <laughs> You've certainly got one. Um, can you... Sorry. Go Nigel, go on, go on. No, I, I, ju I just remember you telling me once, and I, I, I confess that it amazed me, that in the end, after all the Formula One championships and all the Grand Prix wins and all the rest of it, probably Le Mans, winning Le Mans in 95 with, with, the, uh, with the F1. 
yeah. actually actually probably meant more. It did actually. I mean, you get asked so many times, what was your best bit in Formula One? You know, was it winning your first race? I mean, at the time, absolutely. You know, getting a chance to design the whole car on your own was the first very real yeah. thing. And then winning your first race and then your first championship. But, but it, you're, you're tr it's true. When I look back, I think still winning Le Mans, people have no idea how difficult it is to win that race. You know, it looks like Audi just, you know, win it every year and it's easy. It, even if you've done it that many times, it's not easy. It's a Grand Prix season in 24 hours, you know. And yes, it's not quite at the pace, um, it is, but, but it's just so unpredictable. It's not just designing a good car, it's the way that car is able to be serviced and repaired and get back out there again and, and the strategy. I loved the strategy in Formula One. You know, I loved it almost as much as a design. I loved, you know, w when we invented pit stops. I mean, that was just, that, well, that was just phenomenal. I loved all that. Yeah. And was it the fact that it was a car you designed for the road as well? Yeah, I mean, sorry, yeah, I didn't answer the question properly. It was winning the more because that's difficult. But it was a lot of personal things too, and that was one. It was, this is honestly a road car. You know, I should have driven it there and driven it home. It should have, that really should have. It's easy to say that in hindsight, but that, you know, that was a big factor. And the other, the other thing too, there's very few Formula One designers that have won Le Mans. Probably Mauro Fagheri. I'm not sure, actually. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, hmm. I'm trying to think. Ferrari's last one was 65. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say maybe sort of many, no, maybe 63. I was trying. I'm not yeah. much of a historian, but uh, I was trying to think the other day, and that that meant a lot actually to 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 stay in Formula One for 20 years, win in Formula One, come out of Formula One, and the first thing you pick, you pick the hardest race, and you win. And of course, we did three World Championships as well. Sure. Yeah, or three, two World Championships, and two national championships, I beg your pardon, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the other thing is about Le Mans, if memory serves, am I doing him an injustice or was Ron not terribly interested in it? Because I, I just have a memory, and I might be completely wrong, that he sort of flew out very late. Uh, yeah, Ron, Ron to be fair, Ron wasn't terribly involved in, no. in Le Mans. He got involved in doing the deals, um, for the sponsorship deals, and particularly, I think, the Ueno Clinic one. Um, but the lead-up to Le Mans was so, I mean, it must be the cheapest Le Mans win in history. You know, my, my total budget to make the, G, not to go to Le Mans, to make the GTR from the road car was 750 grand for everything, tooling, wind tunnel testing, the lot. And then we did one 24-hour test at Ricard, and I think the guy that won Le Mans came with a quarter of a million dollar sponsorship. So it must be, you know. You know. And you didn't. Uh, how much? You can't have much got much time in the in the tunnel either, presumably. Uh, well, I had one day, one day. Yeah. So I did the kit. Um, I mean, I knew roughly. Uh, I knew exactly what the regulations let you do. And I knew roughly the size of the rear wing, and I had a pretty good idea what we'd have to do on the nose to balance that amount of downforce. Uh, but I had literally one. I think it was a nine-hour session, and that was it. We we drew the bits the next day, tooled them up, and put them on the car went racing. <laughs> it's like silly, really. You, you, you say that uh, you know, Le Mans got a particular satisfaction throughout the spectrum of your motorsport career. Um, obviously in F1, as you say, said earlier, you, you invented the, the pit stop in 82. You did the fan car. You, you know, the various other little tricks you bitched. Which, which, which of those was, mo was most satisfying or gave you the most pleasure? 
Um, some of the little things were satisfying. You know, it's it looking back. Some of one of the, one of the greatest things, which probably no one even knows about, was the first what we used to what is now known as a race rear end, with the BT52. Um, you know, all the way through the year, through the uh, season before '83, '82, um, that was my first pit stop car. It was the BT51, mm -hmm. and I designed. I thought we we're going to be ready really early. Testing in October with two cars ready, fantastic. And all year, I mean, people know the story. I know, but all year, Benny was saying, "Yep, we're going to keep skirts, keep skirts, keep skirts." End of October, we've lost skirts. So I had three months to do a completely new motor car with no skirts, and in that design. Because I'd lost the side pods and shifted all the weight back, I actually decided to slice the car at the connection between the rear bulkhead and the powertrain. Because on the BD52, that was the Arrow car, it had the intercooler and the radiators attached to the engine frame. And the mechanics were always there until 3 or 4 in the morning and changing gear ratios and rebuilding stuff and changing drive shaft grease and all sorts of things. And that's where the mistakes happened. You know, quite often you'd have a failure because the guys were there at two o'clock in the morning and absolutely finished, you know. Um, so I made a race rear end. I made, we took, we took three rear ends that had already been put on a plate in the workshop and all the wheel alignment done and everything. So at the end of practice, uh, we um, unbolted the other rear end, put the right ratios in, bolted it on, fired it up, checked for leaks, and we went home at five o'clock. And all the other teams are going, why are they going home? And it's things like that. It's the big, sure, the fan car and hydraulic suspension and blah, blah, blah. But it's those things that, the little things that made a big difference to the car being reliable and, the, and finishing races and winning races. You know. um, I don't think we can get away with just dismissing the fan car as... In a, in a sentence, just no, just no. <laughs> I mean, were, were, were you, I mean, at the time, were you surprised that you actually got into a, any Grand Prix at all? Uh, yes, because it was a lot of work. It was, it was a massive amount of work. It was a hundred new bits and all the testing and four clutches and s extra gear sets and in a couple of months um, before the Swedish Grand Prix. So I was amazed that we finished it and I'm, I'm even more amazed that it actually got there and finished the race, to be honest. Yeah. But you're always confident you get it past the scrutineers. Well, it was legal. It still is. The artic <laughs> Article 3.7. <laughs> I've got the letter from the CSI. I've got the letter on you. They sealed the truck, and it's 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 been printed so many times. The car was banned. It it's a sniffer banned. No, no, it was, it was withdrawn yeah. voluntarily. It was withdrawn yeah, by yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they gave us till the end of the season. They did say they were going to change the wording in the article at the end of 3.7, and it's probably just as well they did because I already had the BT47 on the board, which was a which was a wide chaparral-looking thing, a uh, box with twin variable blade fans on the back that feathered the fans on the straight and I mean it was that would have done 6G or something you know <laughs> so uh, it was just as well but um, that we was a fun we time we should ask you to print those drawings at some point that sounds fascinating can we track test it and of course but if the team had been owned by anybody other than Bernie of course you, you know you would have finished the season with it wouldn't you for sure yeah I mean Bernie Bernie was he, he wasn't uh, to be fair to him he wasn't forceful at all he came and asked me nicely but he said look I think if we don't withdraw it you know all the work I've done in building up the Formula One Constructors Association is going to be down the pan and you know I was I stamped my f feet a bit um, 
probably said a few things. Uh, and and then I thought, you know, he's he's right. And we are only going to get the season out of it. You know, they, they, we won't be able to use it. Yes, we would have beaten Lotus, I'm sure. But, you know, it, it was for the good of the sport. The worst thing I ever did with a fan car, the final story, is that we had a third one built, but didn't have time to assemble it, so it was all on the back of the truck as a, as a complete set of spares, but it was a whole car with a gearbox and a fan and everything. And Chessington, we had a very small backyard, no space in the workshop, and the car was out in radcons and things. And the mechanics, just after Bernie had asked me to withdraw it, the mechanics came to me and said, we need some space, what do we do with the third car? And I said, chop it up. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I never knew that. Yes. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, on that note, um, Gordon. Gordon, uh, sorry, I was just going to say while we're on this, which was your favourite Brabham? Oh God, that's another one I get asked. You know, and I like them. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, not coming out with clear answers, but I like well, them. I, just, I, mean, I love the '52 because different you look at reasons. It, now, it was so different I think from anything I else think at the time. Yes, I, I think if I had to pick one motor car, it would have to be the '52 because it was done. I was taking drugs to keep awake basically it was done in two and a half months completely new car and and didn't see a wind tunnel um, absolute flyer on moving the weight distribution it had the race rear end for the first time it was the world's simplest Grand Prix car it was the most non-adjustable Grand Prix car thing even if you go back to the 50s probably ever made because I didn't have time to build in the adjustment and I didn't I said to the guys we're going to be chasing horsepower all year and we need to focus on the engine because that's going to get us much more time than adjusting a front wing flap or, you know. So I just made it non-adjustable. Um, and and it, it looked good. It was, it was the first pit stop car which worked, half tank car which worked. So for lots of reasons I'd have to pick that one. But very dear to my heart are the 44, uh, the 75, 44B in particular. And the, because it was such a neat, tiny little thing and flew on high speed circuits and it had crude ground effect as well. Um, and then there's the 49 because it was just such a successful little motor car. We, we, we raced that for three seasons. We built 18 of those. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult to choose one, isn't it? <laughs> um, can we talk about the present? Yes. Um, because what you're doing is fascinating. I don't pretend to understand all of it, but, it, but it's certainly fascinating, and a lot of it is revolutionary. So can you run th through with us exactly what iStream involves? Okay. All right, I'll try and, I'll try and summarize I it. mean, the production... Um, pr yeah. yeah, okay. What iStream is, it's taking Formula One technology and making it available to the everyday motorist. That's the headline, if you like. And it's not taking Formula One materials like, um, say, McLaren are doing now with their, with their carbon fiber monocoque. No, even the MP4412C. That's taking Formula One materials, but a lot of it's monolithic. BMW with their i3 and i8, they've got, a, they've got an aluminium chassis with a carbon fiber superstructure. But that's all monolithic carbon, so it's single skin carbon, which is completely the wrong way to use carbon fiber. Because what you're looking for is a, is a high moment of inertia. So you're looking to separate skins with a, with a honeycomb or a, or a foam core. Every single racing car on the planet uses that technology. 
you have two composite skins and they're separated with honeycomb and that gives you a very stiff, lightweight structure. That's, the r that's Formula One technology. Whatever the materials are, what nobody's ever come up with a way of making high volume cars uh, at low cost and there's three reasons. First one as covered is material cost. The second one is process time. Even these days with pressed pre-preg and stuff, it's minutes or hours to make a panel. And the average sort of tack time when you're making a car, anything longer than 120 seconds, uh, it's not going to cut the cake, basically. So it's a completely different world making high volume motor cars. And the third one, and by, hard, by, by far the hardest one to, to uh, solve is attaching all the point loads. So typically a motor car has 140 point loads on it, so that's suspension, engine, clutch pedal, steering column, seat belts, engine mountings, all that sort of stuff. To try and attach those into a carbon honeycomb, or sorry, a composite honeycomb structure, you have to put in a, a load spreader every single time. Now in a Formula One car where you've got a couple of weeks to make a monocoque, it's easy. If you've got two minutes, forget it. So what iStream does, it solves all those three problems. The material cost we solve by using Formula One technology, which is a honeycomb uh, twin skin. We don't go near carbon, we use glass. The uh, matrix or the, the resin system isn't epoxy, which is hugely expensive and hard to cure. It's polyurethane. And the core material, instead of being aluminium or Nomex, is recycled paper, honeycomb. So a typical monocoque panel costs about 20 euros. And the cycle time is 100 seconds. So that's the breakthrough that allows us to go high volume. And then the final one, which is fixing the, the point loads, rather than try and fix the point loads into the honeycomb composite, we make a very simple, a simple steel frame, not a space frame, just a, a mild steel frame that joins the dots and picks all the points up. So that carries the load. On its own, it's useless. But by the time you've bonded the monocoque to it, you've got an extremely light, strong structure that, that takes no longer than two minutes at any station. And that is absolutely the same time scale as it takes to make a steel car, stamp steel car, with only 15% of the investment. Lighter, stronger, stiffer, more durable. It's a revolution, isn't it? It is. It is. Because uh, we've made cars the same way for just over 100 years yeah. now. It's about time we had a shift. <laughs> Did all this come to you in the bath or something? I mean, how, how it, I started this in 93. Right. And I started it in 93 by... I've always liked small cars, and I wondered why manufacturers didn't make more small cars. And when you do the sums, it's pretty easy, because you don't make any money making small cars, because the investment in the tooling and development for a small car and a medium or large size car is very little, very not very different. But the contribution from profit a large car makes is enormous. So people don't make small cars. And I also, we knew that, you know, lightweight was probably going to be the last frontier in road cars. We're now, we've picked all the low hanging fruit with engines and fuels and things, you know, and now it's the law of diminishing returns, isn't it? As you, as you uh, get another 2% from your internal combustion engine, it just costs more and more and more. And the last big frontier is lightweighting and not piddling about with, you know, a bumper that's two kilos lighter or a big change, a step change. And the investors in our company saw exactly that as the next frontier, and that's why they've invested in it.
What, what seems a shame to me is that you're not producing a, a Gordon Murray car for the road that is, you know, the car, the car that we should all have. Because it seems to me that, I mean, this is enormously clever, but you're now in the process of construction, not in the business of building cars. No, we're not manufacturing, we're licensing the technology. But uh, you have to watch, I said earlier, we're working on nine cars. And uh, there's something in there for everybody. And there's one, I, there's one, there's 65 people in this business. And there's one, there's going to be 65 of them parked out there. Where as soon as that hits the shops, I tell you, and you'll probably drive one as well. Can't tell you much about it, but it's just the sort of thing the world needs, I reckon, for fun. Well, actually, I rather wanted the, the one I saw last time I was here. And little, little, I mean, I think they're wonderful little things. I like small cars. It's, it's um, not going to be a modern sort of a LAN, is it? Or <laughs> how is it? <laughs> good, good thing this isn't TV. It's taken a long time to get this technology to to this this stage. Yes, I've been I've been on it for twelve years, and this company's been funded for seven years, and it's now fully industrialised, and we're working, as I say, on seven discrete projects at the moment, and nine motor cars within those seven projects, and everything from a tiny two-seater city car to a three and a half ton off-road truck, which has been one of the, fun, the most fun things we've done, yeah. actually. Yeah. Was there ever a time when you thought um, this wasn't going to happen, that you weren't going to get the funding? And you I think it's always dodgy. If you're doing something, uh, but uh, I've had it all my life, if you think about it. You know, if you're doing something really disruptive, whether it's in Formula One or not, it, sometimes it doesn't work. You know, if you look at some of my failures, if you like, um, with a surface cool car, the first laydown Brabham, um, mm. which eventually we got right with the MP44, but the Brabham, when I laid the engine over, the engine stopped working. <laughs> 17 degrees, didn't scavenge the oil back from the cylinder head. And it took all year to find out what that was and try and fix it. Was that the 55? Yeah. Yeah, yeah just, it just coming out of right-hand corner, can't remember which way it was, coming out of either right or left-hand corner, it just stopped accelerating. Could, could you have made it work? Um, oh yeah, with time, absolutely. We found out right near the end of the season. We just kept putting bigger and bigger oil radiators on it. And then we took it up to Mallory Park and actually measured the oil in the tank after left-hand corners and right-hand corners and found out that it was all in the cylinder head. Yeah. Well, that very neatly answers a question that's come in from Neil Kirby, so that's good. Um, we've got lots of readers' questions. Shall I? I think we should definitely um, ask you a few of these. Um, uh, Gordon, Mark Smith wants to know, um, could, could you name a, f a handful of cars that you believe were game changers? Yeah. yeah. I mean, literally, yeah. I, I've, d I've done that in my own head several times. Um, and I've... Uh, I can't go back to the really early days because I'm not that interested in what I call horseless carriages. I can't get... I love... I've got a, I've got a fairly eclectic sort of collection of cars that I drive and stuff um, but but they're all sort of cars that I've always wanted since I was a kid so apart from the Model T which is the obvious one which kicked it all off um, I would say um, the first Fiat Multipler you know the the little Cinquecento that had three rows of seats <laughs> yes. which actually yes, was a, four a forerunner to uh, one of my other milestone cars which is the original Renault Espace um, that went pretty much unnoticed as an MPV, but it was an MPV. Yeah. Uh, 
The two very obvious ones that I love and, and, and have always loved is the uh, uh, Cinquecento and the Mini. Yeah. Are huge milestones. Um, the Cinquecento for being the first real car that you know for the for the people, if you like, that was practical and um, and then the Mini with its pa with its magic packaging. For me, car design is packaging. It, absolutely, and Formula One teaches you that big time. You know, you've got no room to put anything, and it's the guys that package the car best uh, have the reliable, quick car, basically. Um, so those are the two key ones then. And then, and then following that would be the Renault 4L, um, which I've got one of. It's just, you know, they made eight million of those. That was talk about it. It's just phenomenal. One of the best off-road cars ever, ever designed. Um, and then the jumping to a modern car, but it, the connection is, I think, the modern version of that is a Renault Kangoo. The first Kangoo. Now, of course, they've got, you know, not just Renault, but everybody's, they, they've got leather seats and 10 loudspeakers and all that sort of rubbish in them. But the original Kangoo was the sort of, um, the 4L was its grandfather, yeah. if you like. And I've, I've got I've got three kangoos. Um, they look good too, actually. Yeah, they they're brilliant. The packaging is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. it's got it's got more load area in it than a than a Range Rover, and is it's it? four meters long. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal. I love um, that statistic. So it's um, what else? Um, sports car wise, the Elan for me is still the milestone for lightweight driver feedback handling. Um, I'm trying to think of something else that's, uh, first Renault Espace, of course, was a, was a brilliant yeah. master. In the car. He, I, I remember you, at one period, you, you certainly loved, you had a, I remember you had a 911. And you used to yes. come to the Barlimo and, it, and, you, and you, you loved yeah, that. Yeah, I had a, an air-cooled Supersport, which was the turbo chassis with a Carrera engine in it. I think the 911, it depends what you mean by milestone cars. I think 911 yeah, was no, a great design of motor car, and no, it's no. still. But, but it was always a mistake that they made good. A bit like a helicopter, you know. Let's hang the engine out the back. Oh, it handles really badly. Let's spend 50 years trying to make it better, you know. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Nicholas D'Amato wants to know what gives you a greater feeling of satisfaction. Stream or the success of the McLaren F1 broken? Stream, definitely, because it'll affect, it'll affect more people. The, the, the F1 was, was a wonderful experience, having a clean sheet of paper and picking the team and working with a great bunch of people and producing what we tried to make was the best driver's car around. But, I mean, all it can do is sort of point the way for people, but it doesn't really affect a few wealthy guys get to drive it, you know. Whereas this, hopefully, everybody will feel what light, safe, lightweight, rigid cars can, can feel like, in whether it's a sports car, city car, saloon car, whatever. You know. Yeah, it's certainly exciting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, Matt Bolton wants to know what would your long-term vision have been if you had stayed with McLaren? Uh, would would the P1 be, be would have been your kind of car or not? Uh, no, definitely not. No, I had a, before I left actually was when the new management came in just before I left. I did write a sort of 12-year business plan and platform strategy, um, 
And it, it certainly didn't have a P1 in it, no. What about the MP412C? Well, I started work on what was then called Project 8 before we left. And that was going to be a success of the next car built in some volume. But that was going to be a very lightweight, um, small capacity, normally aspirated car with a transverse gearbox. Carbon tub, aluminium subframes. Um, and it, I think the MP412 sort of all happened after I left. So it's, it's got very little in common with uh, what Project 8 was. Yeah. I mean, do you actually see any point at all in building these cars? Because I don't. I think, you know, I think I do. I think if they, um, oh, it depends which cars you're I'm talking, talking about. about you know, you're talking about P1s? Or yeah, in? I'm talking about hybrids. Eight, 800, 900,000 pounds. No, I, I, it's, I don't. F firstly, I can't get excited about any sports car that weighs one and a half tonnes. I can't. For me, I just can't. And it doesn't matter who makes it, you know. When the Bugatti Veyron came out, I just thought, you know, just two tonne. So I drove one. I drove one with top gear down in Sicily and uh, on the track around Anna and on the road. And funny enough, I th it, was, it was the other way around. I thought the track would be horrific and the road would be really exciting. And it was completely the other way around. The, the track, having a thousand horsepower under your foot, even with a heavy car, was great fun, mm -hmm. jumping chicanes and things. Mm -hmm. and, but the road was with the turbo lag was just dreadful. I don't, I don't see, I just, I, I just can't get excited about heavy sports cars of any description. And then if you start layering in batteries and, mm. and, and, and complex systems and stuff and losing the noise and the feel and stuff, I'm a bit old fashioned like that perhaps, but I don't, don't see the point really. So where, where are we going uh, with the motor car apart from iStream and greater economy. Uh, I mean, w are we going to stay with the combustion engine for the foreseeable future? I think the combustion engine is around for a long, long time, yeah. Uh, w with a mix of other things, you know. What we need to make, to make pure EV, anything outside a tiny city car to make pure EVs worthwhile uh, and affordable now is second, third generation batteries. For the current level of batteries, you're talking about 50% of the retail price being a battery, yeah. which is not viable really. And, and there aren't enough places to charge it, but I guess... Oh, well, the infrastructure will follow very quickly. Right. I don't think that's a fundamental issue. Okay. Do you think you're finished with motorsport, Gordon? Not at all. Not at all. I know my technical director here is champing at the bit. Once we've, we've all promised ourselves that once we've got, you know, the, the licenses and, and the license uh, royalties coming in, that will re-look at our, uh, our lives. I've got one more supercar left in me, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And what sort of motorsport would you would float your boat? I'd like to go. You know, I love sports car racing. It's silly for somebody after 20 years in Formula One, but I started racing sports cars. This thing behind us here, and um, I love sports car racing. So I'd I'd like to get back into. I'd like to do Le Mans again, actually. I mean, the modern P1 rules are quite. Uh, quite exciting and soon you know we're getting more manufacturers coming in so it's yeah it's starting to he heat up isn't it yeah yeah no i haven't ruled out motorsport i must say I, when i was driving here today i was sort of thinking g murray and modern formula one and i i i, I never could see that as a, as a mix at all yeah. because um, there really isn't any room for a free spirit anymore 
uh, it seems to me. And I, there, I mean, just a couple of things that came back to me on the way. One, I remember the first year we were in Vegas. Remember that? And you just, as far as I remember, took to your room, didn't you? And drew the curtains. That was Vegas, yeah. <laughs> yes. I locked myself in my room for yes, two days. That's yeah. right. But yeah, that, yeah. That, that wasn't Formula One, that was Vegas. Yeah, so I know that. I yes, just, I know that. Yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. the most horrific place yeah. I've been in my life. Yeah. 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 Especially yeah. in yeah. daylight. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that came back to me was that uh, Harama in 81, there you were. I mean, you were the technical director of a front running team, and you simply left the pits for the race. And just and you walked around. I think you walked. Didn't you walk around the whole circuit did, of the yeah. course of the race? Because yeah. I, rem I remember you saying that night, because it was when Gilles was had the you know the, the gaggle behind him, and you said that was the best drive I've ever seen by anyone. Yeah. Um, you learn a lot about in those days with no telemetry. Yeah. The, the only way to actually analyze a car on the track was to actually go or yeah, driving yeah, style. Yeah, yeah, sure. to actually go and have a look. I walked yeah. around Monaco a couple of times right. too. And I had a, my dear friend David Phipps, a photographer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have I've got and you know big packets of pictures from him. I used to set him up on a corner at ground level and photograph all the cars in exactly the same place to look at camber change and tire roll off, uh, stuff like that. Amazing. You know, but it's just just the very idea of a technical director feeling free to absent himself from the pits well, I've for always the duration been, I've of always the Grand I've always been Prix. lucky to have a good team of people around me, you know. Um, one of the things I think I'd hate in Formula One these days is it must be very difficult to pat yourself on the back and say it's your car when you've got 600 people to manage. We knew it was our car in those days because, you know, yeah. just had one or two of us. Yeah. Who was the most rewarding? You've worked with some pretty good drivers. Who was the most rewarding to work with? Again, I, s I always sound like I'm avoiding the question, but for different reasons. I think if you take a, an overview, um, it was probably Ayrton, I think. Um, but I had a much... No, that's wrong, actually. Most rewarding in its full thing, I think PK, because we were mates. Um, he was seven years with the team, so we got to know every single thing about the, how we each other... We thought about things, about situations, talking about strategy. So I would have to say PK for all those reasons. If you're talking about, you know, somebody really focused and having instant success um, and talking through strategy, it was um, Ayrton, I think, yeah. There's a question here, Gordon, from um, somebody called Frederico Pinero de Mello. Uh, we have a global audience, obviously. Um, he wants to know who the most fun driver you worked with was. Would that again be That'd PK? Be PK. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Just yeah, checking. PK, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. We did have some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this comes from Malk McLeod. He wants to know whether Ron Dennis ever placed any sanctions on what you could discuss at, uh, say, an Ian, an Ian Young lunch in the pub or at any other function. No, never. Interesting. Did, did he, he did he know about them? I mean, I was I was Probably I was not. usually there at those union <laughs> lunches, and I remember them. And I, they weren't Ron affairs at all. No. no. <laughs> Actually, can can I just ask you? This is a bit um, uh, left field, but looking at McLaren last year in Formula One, were, were you surprised at her knowing what you know about the place? Mm -hmm. How badly wrong it went? Um, not not just talking about McLaren specifically, but teams. You know, you go through cycles, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And 
I think the one thing that's become imperative, um, it's always been important within a team, is communication. Mm. And at its basic level, from its basic level right up to a very technical level, is communication. And you need to have a certain culture in a team to have good communication. And when I saw Red Bull formulated, I thought, well, they've got a couple of years to go. But and then when I got to meet the guys, and I got to know Christian a bit yeah. better, and of course I know Adrian, um, I could just, and, and, and the way that uh, uh, all the top Red Bull, Bull, Bull guys sort of just looked at the team, and I could just see that gelling, you know, and, and having bundles of that stuff that you need from a communication point of view. And I think... I think McLaren have probably just lost their way a little bit over the last couple of years. They're trying to do a lot, don't forget, you know, opening a big car company and and a Formula One team in the electronics business. It's it's a group, you know. And of course and you get I think you know, you get things where drivers leave or the technical director leaves or whatever and you've got to try and patch that up. Um so I'm it's not just McLaren. I think I think it's teams generally. You know, I I've always said there's five elements you need to win a championship, and actually you need five things to win a race. But you certainly need them. And as the decades have gone through through from 1950 to where we are now, those five elements have always been there. Um, the emphasis changes from decade to decade, right. actually, and and right now it's aerodynamics and team. Are, are right up there with the driver, right up there. Mm -hmm. And if you get one, ele one element of those five wrong, one was tyres, but of course that's sort of gone out the window, apart from choosing when to pit stop, you know, one was tyres and the other was engine. So you've got driver, engine, tyres, the team, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the car. And the emphasis these days is, is heavily on the car with aero, and the teamwork, really. It's just become much more important. Will, will that be the case um, this season, bearing in mind that they can't use the exhaust gases like they have been able to in, in recent years, and they've got this enormous amount of complexity in the powertrain, isn't there? So do you think, I mean, aero will take a, a lesser? I think short, in the short term, sorting out the powertrain is going to be the most important thing, but that won't last. You know that that'll be sorted, and it, it's it'll be, it's going to be with the current formula. It's going to be aerodynamics first and foremost for the foreseeable future. In a few months' time, we're back to square one, won't we? Once once they yeah. get yeah. the reliability sorted, absolutely, yeah. Unless you go back to my motorsport formula, of course, <laughs> then aero becomes less important. But if you were still designing Formula One cars now, would you be sort of depressed by the absolute emphasis on? Aerodynamics. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I'd be well, depressed, but I wouldn't right be word. as would motivated. You be, would you be dissatisfied with I it? I wouldn't be as motivated, and it's not just aero. It's because the way I, the way I think, I'd get bored very quickly with two hundred tiny improvements. I like one or two big improvements, you know. And in road cars, you can do that. You know, there's no rules. When we did the F1, uh, so so funny because a lot of people said to me, "You're leaving Formula One. You're going to road car design. You know, you're going to be bored to tears because you've got to have wing mirrors this size and headlamps in this position." But yes, that's true for homologation. But there, are, there's not one performance rig. 
So I just went bananas on the F1. It's got automatic brake cooling, automatic aero. <laughs> it's got movable everything. Um, you know. Yeah. It's a shame they're so expensive. I'd love one. <laughs> I'd, um, rather, I'd rather a Renault 4L, to be honest with you. <laughs> Fair enough. No, you're okay. talking. <laughs> you said they're eight million bill. Where, where are they all? I keep looking in. I keep looking well, on eBay and can't find. They rust. Yes, to try and find a clean one is really difficult. Yeah, they're, they're, they're probably in Gordon Murray's garage. <laughs> is where they are, actually. Um, right, let's take one more question because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, this comes from Hartman Sandrine. Got some interesting names. Um, he asks if it was different to work on the MP44 than any other of your Formula One cars. The only difference was I had people to do the work. Um, at Brabham, I was so used to, even as technical director, going to all the meetings, going back and sitting on the drawing board and drawing bits. Uh, the MP44 was slapping down a concept, which was, it'd probably be espionage, it's those cop a copy of the 55 <laughs> driving position. And, you know, d designing, I, I, did, I did do s uh, quite a bit of design work on that, but it was mainly around the back end and the gearbox. But, you know, I got there and there was people that could draw the monocoque people that could draw suspension, somebody running the wind tunnel, it was like, it was like heaven, you know, it could, which is great because then you can get on with the actual management of the car design and the strategy and the engineering and stuff. Is that yeah. partly why Adrian is having so much, I mean, okay, he's always been successful, but why he's having this absolute period of total, well, it's domination, isn't it? Is that because he's got such a fantastic amount of backup in that way? I th well, I think there's a lot of teams with a lot of backup. I just think they make it work better for them, right. you know. And of course, Adrian is fundamentally an aerodynamicist, right. you know. So he's he's got a good team. head start, yeah. Yeah. and he's obviously a very clever thinker, you know. So uh, I always think that's why his motivation remains strong is because yeah. of the emphasis on aero these days. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently he's going to go and do an America's Cup yacht. Is that right? Would you you know anything about this? I don't know. Maybe he's got to the point where I got when he wants yeah. a new challenge. <laughs> I, I also have to say, I think that the whole Red Bull setup. It's, I mean, with all due respect to the McLaren Technology Centre, um, the Red Bull, it's, it's an industrial, you know, industrial estate in Milton Keynes. It exists just to do the cars. It's got no other pretenses at all. That's what and, I and, it's, and it's got a really nice feel to the whole thing. That's what I was trying to say earlier. You just feel they've got it right. You know, they really have got everything right. And having run teams since 74, you know, teams of people, that is not just Formula One, teams of people since 74, um, that's a really important factor. You need to get that fundamental thing right. In fact, when you went to McLaren's, um, I mean, yeah, I take your point about you had somebody to do the front suspension, somebody the oil system or whatever, but you were actually quite, I'm sure I remember you saying you were a little sort of taken aback by the relative lack of, uh, um, I don't know what the word is, structure. I yeah, guess, that was, at, well, at that's, that's again my point. The, organi the organization, you know, when, when we were sitting in McLaren with our minuscule budget, sorry, Bernie, but um, we were looking out the window and looking at Ferrari and McLaren and even Williams and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to have that budget? Because I'm sure they've got better systems than us, better control, you know, better lifing systems for the parts and all that stuff. And I arrived at McLaren and they had nothing. You know, they had absolutely zero. And it, it shocked me. It absolutely shocked me. They didn't have a gearbox rig test for, I mean, it, you know, it didn't cost a lot of money, but they didn't have one. They didn't have an autoclave. Um, 
they didn't have meeting rooms, they didn't have post-race meetings and stuff like that, you know. And, and when I tried to find out where all the failures had come from in the previous season, there were no records. So, it, it, you know, I, I immediately got stuck into, that car had already been designed by a consortium, the car for 87. So my first car didn't happen until 88. So I spent a lot of that year, the first half of that year, just putting all those systems in place mm. and getting the communication and the team and the team and the workshop and the test team mm. and the wind tunnel working a lot better. Can we finish? Um, well, let's go. Anybody present? I, I wanted to finish on, on, um, on iStream and what's going on right here where we're sitting because um, you've hinted at quite a lot of exciting things um when might we see um a murray high performance car come out of here do you think high performance or uh, sports higher, car? Uh, a sports car could be 2017 quite soon in fact yeah and will you will that be the car that you race or will you do a I'm race not, i'm honestly not sure that car could race, right. but I'm not, it's certainly, I, I don't know, to be, is the honest answer. Right. It's up to the customer, really. Um, yeah, not sure. And when, when, when we've got the, the Gordon Murray car factory up and running, and we've got cars left, right and centre coming out of here, and people are running around in them, will you get, will you get bored again? And if so, what, what, might, you, what might you do? Well, firstly, when you say the Gordon Murray car factory, we're, ne we're never going to be a manufacturer ourselves. Okay. We're licensing the technology, but we're working with the customer on designing, prototyping, right up to production and beyond production yeah. if they need help. But we'll never make anything. Right. The only thing we may ever make in this company would be a few racing cars or a hundred or so supercars. Right. But I don't consider that manufacturing. That's fun. Sure. Um, and I think that going back to that the fun and the and the new challenge for me would be looking at this whole new brace of supercars mm. all one and a half to two tons full of electrics and stuff would be to dump all that mm. and build a driver's car again and that would be the challenge I think there's, there's one question that still has to be answered I mean if one day we do see the future Gordon Murray Le Mans challenger after which wine will it be named <laughs> <laughs> a French one surely it's <laughs> a good question yes yes have to be uh, have to be my favorite wine on the planet which is Chateau Palmer probably good you heard it here first <laughs> fantastic so well, we could do Chateau Palmer CPO one or something <laughs> like that <laughs> <laughs> we could do a wine program next that would be nice wouldn't it Okay. I just hope it doesn't mean it's tied to a Peugeot engine. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Actually, I did want to. F this is the last one. Um, how much longer is Bernie going to run Formula One? You you know the guy well. Oh. I mean, what's your I as as long as he's able? I think is the answer. He's. Um, I can't see him getting tired of that. It's his whole life, isn't it? Really. Sure. Um, I don't know how much longer the old boy can go on for, but hasn't done a bad job so far, I suppose. Well, that's a matter of opinion, I guess, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, no. Well, you weren't there when Formula One was on no. its knees. I, you <laughs> no, know, I, I can't speak for the period after I left, but certainly sure. I watched Bernie pick Formula One out of the dirt, really. I mean, apart from a few sponsors like Yardley and, and 
good year, giving you a few hundred quid a year. Uh, Formula One was really on its knees in 1970. Actually, people do tend to forget that, don't they? Frank? I entirely agree with you, but but on the other hand, now we've got to a point of double points at the last race. Which yeah, is well, I, as I say, I can't really speak. <laughs> I, I can't I can't really speak about the current stuff, but. Um, well, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's got so complicated now, and so un I think unnecessarily complex. Yeah, yeah. But hasn't life got a bit that way as well, then? Yeah. Maybe we don't want to go down this road. Okay. Thank you very much. Fantastic, Gordon Murray. Thank you. Um, well, that's goodbye from us, really. Uh, we'll be back, uh, Ed, next month. That's right, with our with our preview of the Formula One season. So we look forward to that, and I hope you'll join us then. And thank you very much for listening. So it's goodbye from me and from Nigel Roebuck and from my editor, Damien Smith, from Simon Aaron and, of course, from Gordon Murray and Ed Foster, our producer. Thank you, Ed. OK, see you next time. Bye-bye. Hey, 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 hey,